Good morning. We're in the middle of a, a sermon series that is taking us the entire year where we are preaching through the Bible from start to finish. And today, we come to a story you might have heard. Of all the stories in the Bible, David and Goliath is probably the one that's worked its way into the popular modern consciousness the most. All the way down to on a Saturday morning in the fall, you can hear the TV announcer say that this morning we have a true David and Goliath matchup. David and Goliath is an inspirational story because it's an underdog story. One where the most unlikely and un unexpected of heroes overcomes the most impossible of odds and defeats the most powerful of foes. It's a story that defies expectations and rises above the ashes. And we love those stories. Tom Brady being overlooked and not drafted until the sixth round, only to go on and win seven Super Bowls. Or a college dropout named Steve Jobs starting a company called Apple in his garage. Or an old down-and-out bar singer named Garth Brooks turned down by multiple record labels but eventually became one of the best-selling artists of all time. We love underdog stories because they give us hope. Who doesn't want to feel like David? Who doesn't want to feel like we can rise above the obstacles that stand before us and overcome all those challenges that stand in our way? We love the stories that showcase the triumph of the human spirit to face the problems and giants of life and slay them with an unwavering confidence as we lay hold of our dreams. We love stories that tell us, you got this. You got this. There's just one problem. It's not what the David and Goliath story is actually about. All that may work for a basketball game, but not real life, and not what you really face. The David and Goliath story actually tells you the complete opposite. You don't got this. You don't got this at all. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Look, to get to the good news... We have to hear the bad news, and you've got to take the red pill of reality. You don't got this. This story actually tells us that we face a problem before which we are utterly powerless. We are not David. It's not about the power of the human spirit. It's not about self-empowerment, therapeutic, inspirational spirituality that's going to make you feel good when you walk out of here, but then all that's going to be gone by the time you show up for work tomorrow because it's an interpretation that cannot bear the weight of real life. And it lies to you about who and what you are. We all have very real problems 
that we face living in this broken world. And we all want that confidence to face them. And the truth is, there's a far better confidence that's available to you than any that you can try and muster up or inspire within yourself. And I want you to know that confidence. I want that confidence to pour out of your heart. So how does the story teach us how to find it? The description of Goliath is one of the longest and most detailed descriptions of anyone in the Old Testament. It reads like the tale of the tape, like a fight night in Vegas before the opening bell, where the announcer says, standing in the valley of Elah, in the Philistine corner, is one who stands nine feet tall covered in the most technologically advanced armor that weighed 125 pounds, with a spear as big as a weaver's beam and a spearhead that weighed almost 20 pounds. His record is undefeated. He wears all the championship belts. I give you the giant Goliath, the champion of Gath. And in the Israelite corner is nobody. Goliath's the only one in the ring. He stands down in the valley all by himself, taunting and mocking and challenging the entire army of Israel. And when it calls Goliath a champion, that word literally means the man between. He's the man who stands between the two armies. In ancient times, instead of everyone fighting and lots of soldiers dying, they decided to go about it in a way that was a lot more economical. And so each side would select their champion, their man between, and then they would fight each other on behalf of their respective armies, and they would decide the outcome in a fight to the death. That's why Goliath says, choose a man to represent you and let him come down and face me. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. I defy every single one of you. Give me a man that we may fight together. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he taunted and he mocked Israel. But no one ever came. Now, if we want to have a deeper understanding of this story, we have to see it in its broader context because this this is not about machismo. Two frat dudes just wanting to do an arm wrestling match. No, this is a continuation of everything we've covered thus far, and we have to see this story in light of Israel's past. The Philistines are still in the land because Israel never drove them out. And secondly... Goliath represents the fact that there are still giants in the land. There's still more work to do. This is all a part of the mission that God gave to his people. But on top of that, what's really at stake in this fight? Did you hear it? It's slavery. It's Israel going back into slavery. That's the terms that Goliath put on the table. He said, send me your best. 
If he wins, we serve you. But if I win, you serve us. You will be our slaves. So this is for all the marbles. This fight didn't just affect these soldiers. It affected their families, their children, their future, their communities. What's on the table is life itself. Goliath is a big nine-foot problem. So how does Israel face this problem? How do they face the giant? Well, they don't. Israel is terrified. Who wouldn't be standing in front of a nine-foot monster? And they're intimidated and they're afraid and that fear has rendered them incapacitated. They look out at the giants before them and their hearts fail. But all of this should sound familiar because it's the same story on repeat, isn't it? Israel, these soldiers, this army is just doing the same thing their forefathers did whenever the spies came back from Canaan and said, there's giants that stand before us and all the people crumbled. But the way that Israel engages this situation is also a reflection of their misplaced values. Because do you remember how Israel wanted a king? They wanted a king to make them look like the nations. They wanted a king that would make them great and transform them into the people that they longed to be. Because they took security and they valued all the wrong things. They valued power and wealth and size and strength like the nations had. So the people wanted a king in their image. They wanted a king that shared their values and they wanted a king that was after their own heart. And that's exactly what they got. Because in this story, Saul is just as afraid as the people. His response is the exact same. The giant of Israel, the man who stands head and shoulders above all the rest, is incapacitated by fear. And whenever he was crowned king, the people saw his size and stature and remember how they said, yes, that is our king. Long live the king. All Israel valued is what they could see on the outside, and they didn't care for the fact that maybe, possibly, on the inside, Saul was small and weak. And God even warned them. And he said, just so you know, eventually, this king is going to sell you out. He's going to use you for his own benefit. But the people still say, long live the king. And that's exactly what Saul did. He hides behind his army for 40 days, waiting for someone, anyone to step up. Then he sells out his own daughter and says, whoever defeats Goliath can marry her. This whole situation is a referendum on the spiritual condition of Israel and all that they valued. Because where is their champion? Where is the champion that expresses all of their values? In the end, everything that they'd based their hopes and dreams upon wasn't enough to bear the weight of real life with all of its real problems. 
Because all that Saul and Israel can see is the nine-foot problem standing in front of them. And don't get me wrong, Goliath was a big problem. But he wasn't the biggest problem. It's in the situation that Israel and Saul completely misidentified what the real problem was. And since they misidentified the problem, they started playing the comparison game. They looked at Goliath's size compared to theirs. They looked at Goliath's advanced armor compared to theirs. Because they had placed their security in all the wrong things. And so when they compared themselves to him, they didn't match up. And that comparison led to the crushing weight of despair. As Goliath's taunts for 40 days started to feel true, he's unbeatable. It's all over now. Goliath was a big problem, but he wasn't the biggest problem. Israel's real problem was their own hearts. It was the sin in their heart that turned their gaze away from God and fixated it upon Goliath. It was that sin in their heart that caused them to walk by sight and to trust in size and sword and spear. It was the sin in their heart that made them once again fail to engage the problems before them according to the promises that God had given them. The problem was that their hearts felt and believed and trusted that Goliath was bigger than God. Now, like I mentioned before, I want to break any notion of simplistic self-empowerment readings of this story that are just so common. Where the application is just, what are the Goliaths in your life? And then you treat every obstacle or challenge in your life that you face like it's your own personal Goliath that God is just waiting for you to overcome. And so then the moral of the story just becomes, don't be a coward like Israel. Quit being afraid and go out there and slay those giants. All of that is garbage. It's trash. And light it on fire while you're at it. Because it places us at the very center and it makes you the very source of all the strength and all the power. And on top of that, it completely misses the point. Why? Because we do the same thing Israel did all the time. We don't see the real problem. And we focus on the wrong giants all the time. We don't see the real problem. When I was a senior in high school, they had us take an aptitude test. My high school had spent a lot of money to make this test available to us, and it was supposed to provide us with some insight as to the career paths that we might choose based on uh, our personality traits as we began to think about our future and make decisions about college. And I was like, all right, let's do this. I remember taking that test and walking out with all my swagger, thinking, nailed it. And then a few weeks later, 
We got the results back in a class that I didn't actually have until later in the day. So all my friends got their test results back before me, and they were all showing off their results like, yeah, you know, I, I got doctor, I got author, writer, I got lawyer. And I remember hearing all that thinking, really, well, if you got all of that, then what would mine say? Best-selling author, CEO, president of the world, how would they quantify my abilities? How could they really encapsulate the greatness that I was destined for? So I got to class, opened up my results, and it was not what I expected. It was like Chevy Chase in Christmas Vacation finally getting that bonus check that he knew he was going to get, and then he had a meltdown. It started off with a summary of the results. This personality should avoid leadership positions and is best suited for jobs with simple tasks and predictable results. It's like, is this mine? Like, what? This is somebody else's? Surely. No, it was mine. And it got worse as I read further and got to the job descriptions and the job suggestions and the career paths it might have me take. And the one that really stood out was the one that was at the top of the list that said, parking lot attendant. (laughs) Parking lot attendant. So as I sat there in the rubble of my broken dreams, I remember thinking to myself, wow, So evidently, my personality is one that can only handle the responsibility of sitting in a chair next to a bunch of not moving cars. (laughs) Just sitting there, watching them. So I was dejected. So I went to my dad's office, and I was like, Dad, I can't, you know, look at this. And he read it, and he got to parking lot attendant, and I thought, here comes that comfort. And no, he cackled like a schoolgirl. He thought that was the funniest thing that he'd ever read. And I'm like, Dad, you don't understand my pain. And he just continued to laugh. And to this day, it is still an inside joke with my family. I remember walking in parking lots with my dad and him saying, hey, bud. Hey, Z, you want me to see if they're hiring? Huh? Now, all of that is a really funny story. But you know what isn't funny? What isn't funny is how many years of my life I devoted trying to prove that test wrong. All the years I spent trying to prove how special I was, that I was worth something, that I was significant, the way I stepped on people, the way I used people for my own advantage, I couldn't see the real problem. And so I fought all the wrong giants. So I went to college where every smart person was seen as a threat to my self-worth. Every exam was a giant to kill. Every test was an attack on my identity. Every opportunity that my friends got was a personal insult. And then I took security in all the wrong things, in performance, in achievement, in status. 
I dress myself in the armor of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-importance. But here's the problem. I always found someone smarter. I always found someone who worked harder, someone who got better grades, someone who got better opportunities and all the attention. And no test score was ever good enough and no applause was ever loud enough. And then the despair kicked in with all sorts of bad habits and coping mechanisms and depression. I was spending my life fighting all the wrong giants because I couldn't see the real problem in my heart. My search for significance, affirmation, and approval. I couldn't see the real giants in my heart, and so I never engaged the problems of my life according to the promises of God. And here's the thing. I would hear a sermon on David and Goliath that says, go and slay those giants. And all it did was reinforce my blindness. And I was a slave to insecurity and fear. So why can't we just go out there and face those giants? Because we fight the wrong giants. If we don't see the real problem. The problem with that interpretation was my problem. The real problem is always out there and never in here. So what do we need? We need the same thing Israel did. A champion, a man between that will come and rescue us from the incapacitating blindness of our hearts so that we might be transformed into the people that God calls us to be. We need a champion, and we are not it. David's father sent him to take supplies to his brothers on the front lines, and he hears Goliath's taunting and mocking and his defiance. David saw the same Goliath that everybody else saw, but his response was completely different. He isn't afraid. He's angry. And he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies and mocks the armies of the living God? Finally, David is the one who sees this situation in light of who God is. God had chosen Israel. God had put his name on them. God had sent them to the giants. So who is this who stands before God and his army? God is the one who is with us. And when David saw this situation in light of God, it allowed him to see the real problem among the people because he's brought in to Saul and he says, let no man's heart fail within him because of this Philistine. He sees the incapacitating power of sin that has gripped the hearts of the very people who were called to be a display of the power of God in this world. And how it narrowed their gaze to where all they see is Goliath's size and strength and armor. So David says to the king, I will be the man between. I will go and I will fight this Philistine. But then what happens? Well, he's actually tempted by Saul to play the comparison game. Saul says, you can't fight him. 
you are but a youth. And he has been a warrior from his youth. That's all he does. He was raised and he was born into this world to kill people. Look at him. Look at you. But David doesn't play that game. He doesn't compare himself to Goliath. He compares Goliath to God. And he says, I have struck down bears and lions, and this Philistine will be like just one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. God will deliver me once again. Finally, there is one who trusts in the power of God. And then we see David reject false security when Saul tries to dress him in his armor, which is nothing more than trying to dress David in his values. But David says, no, this isn't me. I'm after a different kind of power. And then David walked out into the Valley of Elah in front of all of the armies watching from the surrounding mountains. And he stood before the giant. Now, what do you think was going through the mind of the armies of Israel when they watched David walk out to face the giant? With all that this battle represented and everything that was on the line, this is hopeless. It's all over now. Goliath spoke first. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks, boy, I will feed your rotting corpse to the birds and to the beasts. Now, I love me some good trash talk. And David says, no, you come to me with sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, in the name of the God of the armies of Israel. And he's going to give you into my hand I will strike you down, I will cut off your head, and I will feed you to the beasts. Because this battle belongs to the Lord, and I belong to him, which means you belong to me. Mm. Yes, sir. Finally, one comes along who engages this problem in light of God's promises. God had placed his name on them. God had made promises that giants would crumble before them when they fight in his name. Israel was standing there because God invited them into his battle, and the battle belonged to him, which means God fights for his people. I doubt anyone had ever spoken to Goliath like that. And he was enraged. The bell rings. Now the fight's on. Don't blink, because it happens fast. The armies watch as they see Goliath draw his sword, start running towards David, and then they watch as all nine feet of him face plant into the ground after he takes a stone to the face. David runs up, doesn't take any extra chances. He picks up Goliath's own sword, and he hacks and hacks and hacks until he chops off the giant's head. And standing there covered in the blood of his enemy is a new champion, David, holding up Goliath's head for all to see. 
Now, as the Philistines watch all this play out, what do you think is going through their minds? Now they are terrified. And they run. And then the most incredible transformation happens. This champion restores the hearts and confidence of his people. When the people saw the victory of their champion, their hearts were transformed. And I've been to the Valley of Elah. I've stood on that mountain that they stood on, and I wish I could see it like it happened. Because after they saw this happen and their hearts are transformed, the armies of Israel lift up a shout. And they run down the mountain. They run across that valley. And they crush the Philistines. And they share in the victory of their champion. And again, so often, that's where we stop and we don't go any further. You hear something like, Do you see David's courage? You see David's courage? Go and be courageous like David. But here's the problem. Whenever you're told to be like David, you have to ask, which one? Which version of David? The one who killed Goliath or the one who killed his best friend so that he could steal his wife? Which one am I supposed to be like? Because even David had an enemy that he couldn't kill. There was a giant inside of David's heart that was too big even for him. Even David needed a champion, a man between, one that saw the real problem and the real enemy, and one who entered into battle on behalf of God's people and fought in the name of the Lord. David is an echo of an ancient promise. When God said to the woman Eve that the seed of the serpent will wage war against the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. God is telling the whole story of the whole world through David and Goliath. And David points forward to the fulfillment of that promise, a true and better David that will defeat the last and final Goliath. And he will rescue his incapacitated people and transform their hearts. And Jesus stood in the throne room of heaven and said to the king of the cosmos, I will go and I will fight. I will be that man in between. I will be the champion for my people. He did not come wrapped in armor. He came wrapped in flesh and blood as a baby, as an underdog. And when that baby grew up, we finally see for the first time In space-time and history, these two ancient foes meet face-to-face in the wilderness. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, Satan tempted and taunted Jesus. And what's on the table? What are the terms of the engagement? Slavery. Once again, it's slavery. Satan says to Jesus, just bow down and worship me. And I will give you everything if you just serve me. This is for all the marbles. And I want you to think for a second of the darkness that would cover this world and the living hell that life would be 
if Jesus had given in to Satan. You would know hopelessness from which there was no escape in either this life or the next. But Jesus didn't give in. He saw this giant in light of God and his trust in the Father made him untouchable. And the giant fled. And after this encounter, the balance of power changed in this world. Because what do we see? Well, in the Gospels, now we see even the demons cry out when all they do is just see Jesus walk over the hill and they beg him for mercy. Because now there is one over whom Satan, their champion, has no power. And they flee. Jesus sees the true problem and he fights the true enemy and he doesn't take false security. At Gethsemane, Peter draws his sword to fight off the soldiers, but Jesus says to him, Peter, put your sword away. Those things have no power against this enemy. Put your sword away because I want to show you real power. But it didn't look that way. It didn't look that way as Peter watched them carry off Jesus in handcuffs. It didn't look like real power as Jesus stood there silent before the high priest, before Pilate, and before the mob screaming for his crucifixion. Jesus just stood there silent and took all of it, and he didn't fight back. Why? Because they weren't his real enemy. He didn't come to crush them. He came to save them from the real giant that enslaved their hearts. And the only way that giant could be defeated was he had to meet it on the other side of death. And hanging on that cross, this heavenly champion says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust in your power to deliver me. And when Jesus died, what do you think was going through the disciples' minds as they watched from the surrounding mountains? It's all over now. So why did Jesus have to die? For many reasons, but one that's often not considered is that he died so that your heart might be filled with confidence and courage in the face of your problems where you would find strength in your heart when your heart wants to say, it's all over now. Jesus died so that you might have confidence. When you're born in Missouri, you learn from a very young age that the state of Kansas is an axis of evil. (laughs) And the headquarters of this dark empire are located in Lawrence, Kansas, at the home of the KU Jayhawks, which isn't even a real bird, by the way. (laughs) Now, admittedly, KU is one of the most successful and historic basketball programs of all time, and Mizzou, where I went to school, is not. We were always the underdog. We played them twice every year, one at home, one away. In the years that we beat them, on, their ho- on our home court, those were great years. The crowd went nuts. The roof blew off the city because we just beat KU. Those were great years. 
but they weren't the best years. The best years were when we walked into their hostile environment, into Allen Fieldhouse, where all advantage was removed and taken away, where the deck was stacked against us and it all felt hopeless and we beat them on their home court. Those were the best years because those were the years that we had the confidence that beyond a shadow of a doubt, we were better. So why did Jesus have to die? In death, Jesus marched alone into the most hostile place that you could possibly imagine where all advantage was taken away and all the odds were stacked against him so that you would know who is better. So that you would know who is stronger. He entered into the house of Satan, sin, and death and the resurrection is the announcement of who won. That death could not keep its hold on him. And our heavenly champion rose from the dead and he stands before us and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth is now mine because there's nothing that can take it from me. Now go, run into all the world and participate in my victory. We all have problems. And we all want the courage to face them. And Christian, Christ is your courage. Look to your champion and let him transform your heart. And your baptism actually tells this story. Enter into your problems as a baptized Christian. That it says the story that you were buried with Christ in his death. You were raised with Christ in his resurrection, and you are unified with Christ, body and soul. His victory is your victory. Your baptism is God placing his name on you. So why would he let you fall apart when you put your trust in him? Your battles are his battles, and those battles belong to him because you belong to him. Your baptism says that nothing can stand before you because you stand in him. This is why Paul says neither death nor life, angels or rulers, height nor depth, anything present or anything can, that's going to come can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So what does all that mean? It means you don't have to treat every problem in your life as a giant that you have to overcome because you can't. You don't have to treat every problem as a challenge or a threat to your identity or your value or your significance because it isn't. Instead, you can simply allow yourself to see those problems for what they really are, the reality of living in a broken world that renders our hearts incapacitated and afraid. And you can be honest about it. Instead, you can face those things with the confidence that you are united body and soul with Christ, your champion, who's come for you, who is with you, and who fights for you. And when you look to him, 
and his victory over the last and final giant, you can trust that no matter what those problems are, he's transforming your heart. And he's setting it free from something that you can't see. And that will transform you into something that's far better and bolder than anything that you could possibly imagine or anything you could muster up within yourself. Because he's transforming you to look like him. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.